Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's December 19th, 1843. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. It's weird to think that much of the spirit of Christmas, the singing of carols, getting paid time off work and giving cards and gifts and whatnot, was really crystallised by a single tale, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, which was released today in history in 1843. And even weirder that the story evokes metaphorical spirit by invoking literal spirits in a none too (laughs) subtle allegory about why being a mean and miserly person is explicitly against Santa's, excuse me, Jesus's wishes. (laughs) (laughs) And like all great Christmas art, it started because Charles Dickens was kind of in a sticky financial situation and needed to rush something out really quickly. So he was hot in 1843, which is why A Christmas Carol ended up selling out in less than a week. He'd written Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, The Old Curiosity Shop, but he'd just finished the serialised publication of Martin Chuzzlewit, which I think, you know, I haven't read it and I'm guessing you guys probably also haven't read it. I think it's still considered a bit of a flop. I mean, it's long. Yeah, well, it had to be because he was paid by the word, you know. But it hadn't really gone down as well as the others, and he was under pressure to knock out a well, success. Oh, don't, don't don't discount the other books that he wrote around Martin Chuzzlewit. Barnaby Rudge and his touring Diary of America also hits. <laughs> Not. <laughs> so yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because he was like a proper literary sensation. I mean, it's kind of it's, it's sort of Michael Jackson at his peak in publishing terms, right? <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, because he was so prodigious and he put out so much. He had nonetheless just had a hat-trick of flops behind him. Uh, yeah, it feels like in this era, there was no such thing as being like a J.K. Rowling or something where the money was pouring in. And I guess maybe that's something to do with because they hadn't really sorted out international copyright at mm. this stage. So it was hard to have this empire based on a couple of successes. He was also expecting his fifth child with his wife, Catherine. But his publishers, Chapman and Hall, were threatening that if his sales dropped any further, they were going to reduce his monthly income by £50. Pounds. And he also had his father leeching off him as well. So his dad was notorious debt-ridden character who'd gone to a debtor's prison when uh, Dickens was young, which was a real influence on a lot of his stories. So Dickensian. So Dickens's <laughs> literal People didn't life. Yeah. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> and his father had taken to hawking around Charles's autograph to make money uh, at this stage. So you had like that Thomas to deal with. Thomas Markle energy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you had that to deal with, and he was like, right, I need a hit. I'll do a Christmas book, which was a less obvious recourse than it would be these days, you know. Now, it's kind of obvious, like, you know, every band does a Christmas song. Yeah. But it wasn't obvious then. Uh, as much as anything, because Dickens's whole scheme was serialization, right? Famously, he would write the beginning of the book and not know how it was going to end. And then the public would be buying into it like a soap opera and he could drag it out as long as he wanted. Mm. See Martin Chuzzlewit. Yeah. Um, whereas <laughs> by committing to write a shorter book that was going to be given as a Christmas gift, he had to think of a whole complete plan for a novel. I mean, what he came up with in the end, as we all know, is absolute genius and perfect and incredibly structured. But he invented it. He invented the gross Christmas past and present and future and the happy ending and 
That was new for him. Well, he well, it was kind of new for him because if you go back to his first blockbuster, The Pickwick Papers, there is a passage where a character called Mr Wardle tells a tale about a curmudgeonly sexton who mends his ways after a Christmas visit by goblins who show him <laughs> the past and future. Dickens wisely moved away from the goblin element, but this maybe <laughs> explains why it only took him six weeks to write it because he kind of was pillaging some of his past writing as well. Yeah, Michael Slater, Dickens's biographer, describes the book as being written in white heat he said, mm. which, you know, the like six weeks to turn around this absolute classic it's is amazing, astonishing. Isn't it? it takes us that long to do an episode sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those are just my pickups. <laughs> but he, um, he apparently built the work in his head while he was taking these nighttime walks of 15 to 20 miles around London. And Dickens's sister-in-law wrote how he wept and laughed and wept again and excited himself in the most extraordinary manner in composition. So even he was excited about having rid himself of goblins <laughs> from this story. <laughs> but also because I think the idea of writing a political book had been with him since March of this year. Back in March, he'd intended to write a pamphlet called An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child, <laughs> which doesn't sound like a bestseller, does it? Um, and then, according to a letter he wrote, he'd kind of corrected this idea in his own mind, realising his own strengths. He put off this approach because he had an alternative scheme, i.e. the novel, with, quote, 20,000 times the force. He realised that if he could turn this through his imagination into a fable, that the impact of Be Generous to the Poor at Christmas Time could go beyond Christians, it could go beyond left-leaning people, and actually, the political message, it isn't socialism, is it? It's kind of new labour, basically. It's saying Scrooge is responsible for his employees' mm. um, welfare. And that's where the burden of responsibility is. It's not on the state. It's not on everyone. It's on Scrooge because he's got the money, but he can still have his business. He just needs to be kinder. It's quite a carefully thought through political message that really works in the English psyche. Mm. Yeah, and I think it really tied into something that was going on at the moment, which was a revival of old Christmas customs. A lot of the things that we now think of as being classic Victorian Christmas elements were actually attempts to revise pre-industrial traditions because there was this idea that industrialization had made everyone kind of like <laughs> hunched and poor and covered in soot and that the real England was, you know, the kind of Robin Hood type era where you had, yes, you had feudalism, but the feudal lords were like if you were a big turkey or something and then everything was fine. So there was this interesting going back to a kind of simpler, more traditional way of life and that had brought back some of these Christmas traditions. But Dickens kind of saw that this wider, what we would call, I guess, Christmas spirit was maybe the key to healing a society that was so impacted by poverty and industrialization, and there was class resentment as well and just general meanness. And so Scrooge's wake-up call was obviously supposed to be like a wake-up call to society, which I think is what makes it ironic that the legacy of a Christmas Carol is really people kind of overlooked the idea that Scrooge was supposed to be a metaphor for mm. society and people just saw it as I should do spontaneous individual acts of kindness which mm. isn't really what he was talking about at all. My boss should give me more time <laughs> off at Christmas people thought. <laughs> Well, so Charles Dickens had um, come up with at least the kind of political uh, core of it when he apparently travelled earlier in the year up to Manchester to speak at the Athenaeum, which must be the site of pretty much everything that ever happened in Manchester, <laughs> according to our interaction in our with show, Manchester. It either show. happened at the World's Fair or the Athenaeum. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, he gave this speech uh, about what it meant to be uh, a member of the working poor, you know, this population that at the time was very largely 
ill-educated at least and powerless and being exploited by factory owners. And apparently... And which he'd been a member of. Yes, exactly. Kind of closetly. He didn't talk about it. But he, when his dad was in a debtor's prison, he'd worked in a factory as well. So he was talking from experience. That's right, yeah. So he, at, age, at the age of 12, was uh, forced not only to work in this rat-infested shoe-blacking factory, but also had to pawn off his collection of books uh, and leave school. He also left school at this time. So he was really animated, I suppose, because he had experienced firsthand all of the stuff that really sucked about being a member of the working poor. And he spoke at the Athenium super passionately in a way that um, that not only fired up the crowd, but also uh, was the basis of this book. And whilst he was up there as well, he saw his family, including his disabled nephew, Harry, who inspired Tiny Tim. So you can see all the strands coming together, can't you? You've got his political ideas that he was going to put into the pamphlet. You've got what he knew from personal experience about child exploitation, as well as Parliament had just recently looked into this as well, and he was a wide reader of all of their reports. And then you have his own personal experience from his own family of like, ah, I know how to make people sympathetic to this. My own nephew who might die soon. He's like, is there a word for small that's alliterative with Harry or... Okay, no, it's fine. I'll just change the name. (laughs) (laughs) No, he knew what he had. He knew he had a great story and he wanted it to be given as a gift. And he wanted to make it affordable as well. That's the other reason. He could have made a profit if it wasn't for sale for five shillings, but it was, which meant middle-class readers could buy it. I mean, he could have sold it for four times that. Given the reviews that it got, I mean, Thackeray called the book a national benefit. Uh, Lord Jeffrey commended Dickens for prompting more beneficence than all the pulpits and confessionals in Christendom. He did try and capitalise on the success of Christmas Carol by following it up with four more Christmas-themed novellas, which were news to me, I have to say. They're probably yeah. among his least familiar works to a 21st century audience. So he started off with The Chimes the next year. That was a very similar theme. You'll albeit, be visited tonight by three by chimes. Three chimes. <laughs> <laughs> it sold pretty decently, but some people thought the politics were a little bit too unvarnished and radical. Then he did The Cricket on the Hearth and The Battle of Life, which sold well. They were romances with more of a tangential Christmas theme. I have to say, at this point, the Dickens naming was getting out of control. He needed like a name editor because they had characters that were called things like Trotty Vec, Tilly Slowboy, and Chicken Stalker, which is just, <laughs> come on now. The last one was the least successful, but I do think it's the most interesting plot-wise because uh, it was called The Haunted Man and the Ghost's Bargain, playing on some of the familiar themes. Mm. But the premise is really interesting to a contemporary reader, I think, as it's basically the plot of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's about a mysterious spirit who bestows the power of erasing painful memories and kind of how that's actually not good in the end. I mean, it was maybe a little bit too ahead of its time for a Victorian audience. Well, also, <laughs> also no obvious part for Fozzie Bear, which is probably Tomorrow. Even the seas of southern Britain were frozen solid for up to two miles from shore. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, part of the ACAST Creator Network. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.